This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 293. Today we speak with Mark Talbot about suffering. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Jared Oliphant, and we have a great conversation ahead with a guest that I'm really excited about. I'll introduce our panelists first, Carlton Wynn, who is a PhD candidate at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Welcome back to the program, Carlton. It's great to have you back. Thanks, Jared. Good to be here. Yeah. Well, Carlton is doing work in systematic theology, and so um, has a lot to bring to the topic that we're going to be discussing today. Our guest is Dr. Mark Talbot, who is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. Welcome to the program, Dr. Talbot. It's great to have you on. It's good to be with you. Yeah. Our our topic today is, uh, it's one that just about everyone has some interest in. Um, it, really every day um, to one degree or another, and the the topic is Christian suffering. And we're going to be talking about that uh, in general as as just a, a general topic, but also um, Dr. Talbot has been working on uh, a long-anticipated project dealing with Christian suffering, and uh, the book is called When the Stars Disappear, Understanding Why Christians Suffer. So I wanted to start off, um, if you could, Dr. Talbot, just uh, explaining a little bit where that title came from. Um, what what is the genesis of of that, and and what does it mean? The title comes from um, the story that Luke tells, the account that Luke gives us of Paul's shipwreck in Acts twenty seven and twenty eight. You'll remember that Paul, by that point, was a prisoner who was being conveyed to Rome, and while he was on the Mediterranean Sea. Um, a storm came up that, in fact, threatened the lives of everyone on shipboard. Uh, It's a rather remarkable story. We're told that at a certain point, this is more than two weeks out, in their suffering from this storm, while, in fact, they were worried about being driven against um, the Sirtis, which was um, a set of shoals in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea, that uh, the sun and the moon and the stars had all disappeared. Of course, in ancient times, when the way that you plotted where you were and where you were going on the sea was by means of the sun and the stars, uh, that meant that Paul and his companions were under a very grave threat. Uh, At that point, everyone gave up hope. They all assumed that they would be lost at sea, God appeared to Paul in a dream and told him that he was not only going to um, deliver Paul safe to Rome, but that he would do that for all of those who were with him on the ship. And so Paul, in fact, stood up on shipboard and uh, told of his dream and said that God would save all of them, and in fact God did. Uh, it's a really, really remarkable story because it involves something happening that actually involved the stars disappearing in a way that would naturally lead 
uh, those involved in the experience to lose all hope that they could be saved. And uh, then they're uh, learning uh, that God himself was uh, not, of course, disoriented by the storm, not in any way um, um, uh, placed in a position where God was scrambling for what would happen next. God knew all along what would happen and knew that he would bring Paul and his shipmates safe through that storm. And my basic picture is something like this. It's that uh, that account, which is, of course, a factual account, is something which our providential creator God, who also is the source of all of the uses of language, that account is an account that then has metaphorical resonances for us with regard to the way that suffering, uh, and not merely physical suffering, strikes us in life, that uh, suffering often makes it seem as if all of the stars, all of the truths that we have oriented ourselves by have uh, been blotted out, have been eclipsed from the sky. Suffering can make us feel as if we don't know how to move forward, can leave us feeling as if uh, uh, our lives are going to shipwreck and yet, uh, whether or not the stars are actually blotted out in physical space or whether or not they're blotted out in uh, our lives and in their guidance, um, when the stars disappear, God has not lost his hold on life, on our lives. And he uh, is going to lead us, if we are his children, safely through those storms in the same way that he led Paul and his shipmates. Yeah, I found it to be a, a very helpful metaphor and um, a, a good uh, orienting um, metaphor just, just for the book as a whole. Uh, the book idea, the, the topic, um, began from a, a very personal experience, um, both with yourself and with, uh, people in, in, in a student in particular that, that you knew. Um, I was wondering if you could, uh, just explain a little bit about the, the biographical connection, uh, to this topic in your own life. Um, the book actually starts by recounting uh, the suicide of one of my students a few years ago and uh, the way in which that uh, calamity has affected his parents. And then I go on to talk about my own situation. Um, I'm 63 now. When I was 17, I fell over 50 feet off a Tarzan-like rope swing. Um, uh, it was a very uh, dangerous swing that went far out over a goalie. There were two of us who were sitting on a round seat among the rope uh, on the rope, and uh, a third guy. Uh, when we came back for the first time from the arc of going out, was going to jump onto the rope. He waited till the rope hesitated, caught me around the neck. When we got out to the other end, uh, where uh, we were hanging over um, a goalie, uh, I thought uh, I knew we were going to fall, and I thought if I fall on him, I'll kill him. And so I shoved him one way, and I got peeled off uh, underneath the third fellow, who in fact actually stayed on the rope. Uh, the two of us who fell fell about 50 feet. 
when we hit the ground, uh, the other fellow had all of his breath knocked out of him, and I was pretty sure he had to be hurt. So I was uh, trying to hold him down so that he didn't try to move around too much. After I got him settled down, I saw, I looked and saw that my legs were in this little creek and I wasn't feeling anything. And uh, I knew immediately that I had, in fact, done spinal cord damage. About, uh, that was in 1967, about, I think it was four years before that, a fellow named Brian Sternberg, who at the time held the world pole vaulting record, he pioneered fiberglass poles at the University of Washington, had become a quadriplegic when he was uh, practicing his landings uh, on a trampoline and had landed on his neck. And I had met Brian and knew his story and um, uh, knew as soon as I looked at my legs in this crick that I had done the same thing to myself, uh, just a little lower down my back that he had done to himself. The rather remarkable thing about all of that is the way in which from the first moment I had a sense of God's love um, uh, being with me in uh, that accident. Uh, before that, I had worried, even though I was pretty bright, I worried about even graduating from high school because I had been constantly getting myself in trouble and uh, never worked at my studying or anything like that. I had found myself thinking that there wasn't much hope for me in the future. From the moment that I recognized what had happened to me, I had a sense that God loved me and that, in fact, uh, he was uh, starting to work in my life in such a way that my life would have meaning and purpose. And uh, much of what I write about in this book is dealing with that way in which suffering often gives us uh, a revision of our storylines that gives our lives meaning and purpose and that gives us a deep sense of God's care for us. Dr. Talbot, I very much appreciate your willingness over the number of years that you've done it in sharing your your own story and uh, your tragic accident and um, the way the Lord has used that and uh, for your good and his own glory. Uh, I was going to ask this question later on after we went through uh, aspects of your uh, book that you're working on, but, I, but I'd like to ask it now. It's been something that's been rolling around in my mind for a number of years, actually, um, and I don't know the best way to ask it, but, but this is the best way I can think of suffering for a believer in particular can be, as you're well aware, agonizing and yet also precious. Uh, you have spent effort after effort in ministering to others through your own suffering. And I, I imagine there's a risk, maybe even you've experienced other believers or non-believers maybe not appreciating the preciousness of your own suffering, the depth of what it has meant to you. How? Here's my question. How can we as Christians who suffer, particularly Christians who have suffered in profound ways, how can they love and minister well out of the comfort that they've received to people who may not um, appreciate the depth of the preciousness of of that Christian suffering. Does that does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm no, trying no, it's to good, ask? It's a good question. Um, 
I make the remark in chapter two of my book where I'm starting to handle some cases of profound suffering that um, we quite often are um, not aware of what scripture has said about profound suffering uh, in cases like Naomi's or Job's or Jeremiah's. And quite often our lack of awareness of that is that unless we ourselves have suffered profoundly, we are not likely uh, to uh, see, uh, uh, to recognize uh, other cases of profound suffering. And so I think to some degree, the answer to your question, Carlton, is something like this. I think that um, Christians are not likely to value um, other Christians' accounts of the way in which God has met them in deep suffering. They're not likely to value those things until they themselves start to suffer profoundly. And then they uh, start to, uh, they've got questions that lead them to listen differently, both to Scripture and to uh, others who have suffered. And so what I've generally found is that um, my ability to speak to someone who is suffering pretty deeply, whether or not the person's Christian, uh, uh, is very closely tied to how deeply they are suffering and uh, therefore how ready they are to, uh, how open they are to hearing uh, the ways in which God may meet them in their suffering in a way that they wouldn't be if they weren't suffering. So mm -hmm. I, my guess is that we, we uh, quite often... Um, need to recognize that until people uh, have, by God's mercy, uh, begun to suffer, they are not likely to be able to recognize the ways in which suffering can be something precious and a way in which God meets us. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. Well, uh, that, I think, ties in with something you write in your book. You, you helpfully walk through a number of examples from the Old Testament of of saints who suffered and, and suffered profoundly. Uh, you particularly emphasize uh, Jeremiah's suffering almost to the breaking point of questioning uh, the goodness of God. Uh, but one thing you say is that Naomi and Job and Jeremiah, no matter how bad their suffering became, they always assumed that God was behind it all, ultimately. Uh, that That's not always the case today with with Christians even, professing Christians. Could you talk about maybe ways you've understood that, reasons for that, uh, Christians neglecting to see uh, the sovereignty of God behind their suffering and what consequences uh, might follow from, from, that, uh, from that error? Yeah, that's a really worthwhile question. Um, I drive home just... Um, how explicitly uh, God's Old Testament saints um, acknowledge that if they are suffering, then God has ordained it, precisely because in our time, quite often people want to let God off the hook. Uh, what they want to say is, well, if I'm suffering really awfully, this has got to be something that God at most 
is permitting. Um, it's something that he's allowing, but it's not something that he has actually willed. If you look at, for instance, the case of Naomi, as I mentioned, she took her suffering as divinely ordained, and she expressed it in a variety of ways in verses 13 and 20 and 21 of chapter 1 of Ruth. She uh, talks in terms of the hand of the Lord having gone out against her. She talks about the Lord having brought her back empty to Bethlehem. She talks about God having testified against her, as well as the Almighty having brought calamity upon her. And those kinds of statements that Naomi makes are uh, typical of the statements that we find in both the Old and the New Testament with regard to God's relationship to our suffering. Uh, when you work your way through the Psalms of Lament, which I spend a lot of time working my way through in the third chapter of my book, you'll find that uh, the psalmists just assume that if they are suffering, the ultimate reason they are suffering is because God has ordained it. It's not that something has fallen out of his hands. It's not that God is scrambling to write something that has gone wrong and somehow gotten away from him. It's instead that uh, this is part of what God has ordained or ordered for their lives from uh, eternity past. Now, the importance of that is, the, to me, the ultimately crucial importance of that is that I am going to look at my suffering quite differently if I think that, in fact, my suffering is part of uh, the events in my life that God has ordained for my good. And it means that I'm not going to assume that uh, this suffering is something that God would rather not um, uh, be. I'm going to assume that there is a positive reason for it, even if God may not in this life reveal to me what that positive reason is. But the fact that there's going to be a positive reason for it means that I am going to take it that there are goods that God is conveying to me by means of this suffering and therefore, I'm going to take a different posture to my suffering than I would if I were to think that God is merely trying to write something that has spun out of his own control. Yeah, that that's very helpful, and that's at least part of um, what I think is the overall purpose of the book that includes uh, both, uh, well, God behind both the fact of, of suffering and then um, our experience of it as well. And so, um, over the years, as you've surveyed different books on suffering, um, what what hole do you think this book fills in terms of just the literature that's out there? Um, and and this seems like it's it's intended towards a, a somewhat popular audience. It, it's certainly not over too many people's heads. And so, in terms of just you know generally accessible reading, um, what did you not see that you're trying to correct? Well, with regard to accessibility, it does seem to me that a lot has been written, um, uh, both philosophically and theologically, that is um, uh, very um, uh, useful if you have the tools to understand it, if you have had enough academic training, either philosophically or theologically. But suffering is something that, in fact, afflicts all of us in this world, and that God means 
to be part of the way that every Christian learns. Uh, therefore, if um, uh, if it is not the case that in order to profit as a Christian, you have to be um, philosophically trained as a philosopher, then somebody ought to be writing a book that will allow you to profit from what Scripture has to say about suffering without your having to have to learn all the philosophical or theological jargon. So what I'm really trying to do is write a book where if anybody uh, is suffering uh, and has enough motivation, the person can understand um, uh, the main points of what Scripture has to say about suffering, and then here's the hole that it fills. Right, yeah, now, that, that's helpful. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it, it may be that I um, that I just don't know of something that's out there. So apologies in advance to anybody who's done what I'm trying to do. But it, it seems to me that there is no book right now that... Um, deals with the suffering of Christians in such a way that we get the full Christian storyline of why God ordains our suffering. And I think that storyline actually has to start with what we're told in Genesis 3, when uh, after Adam and Eve sin, uh, God curses the serpent uh, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He curses uh, the woman's um, uh, um, uh, bearing of children and uh, announces that, in fact, there is going to be, and this is obviously something that he's ordaining, tension between her and the man, he curses the ground so that the man is going to have to uh, rest from the soil in pain and in sweat, uh, the goods that he gets from it. God does those things. Why does he do those things? We aren't told in Genesis 3, uh, and, and in fact it's in no way implied that those things have just happened because Adam and Eve sinned. Although, interestingly enough, in one of the most popular books on suffering, C.S. Lewis's Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis suggests that once Adam and Eve rebelled against God, that all the consequences of sin, including the consequences of physical suffering and pain, were probably inevitable. That, in fact, it wasn't that God ordains those things to be, it's instead that they just naturally come about. Well, that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is that uh, pain and suffering are a punishment for sin, and yet a punishment that has two faces. For those who are not Christian, it actually is retribution, although even there it is offered uh, with the chance of mercy that non-Christians will recognize that they have done what is wrong and turned to God in Christ. For Christians, it's properly, as it's put in Hebrews 12, chastisement. In other words, it's a way of God disciplining us for our good and um, disciplining us in ways that, in fact, are essential to our becoming what he wants us to become. Now, what I'm trying to do in the book, then, is to start with that picture of suffering and then explain how the 
all of the suffering that we face in this life will ultimately be redeemed in such a way that we will find ourselves everlastingly compelled to praise the work that God did in Christ because of the way that it has reconciled us with God and allows us to be right with him again, despite all of our sin and all of the suffering that comes out of it. So I want to give this full Christian storyline of the way that suffering ultimately is going to be integral to our being uh, the people that God wants us to be in praising his son everlastingly. Dr. Talbot, I think, I think you've done that in the sections that I've read of your book, and I very much appreciate you uh, resituating human suffering in the light of redemptive history and the storyline of Scripture. Um, I think ultimately the answer to our suffering is uh, looking back to the cross and the empty tomb and lifting our eyes upward and forward to what God has promised to do on the far side of the grave. Uh, as you do that, as you're situating Christian suffering, profound Christian suffering within that, uh, the historical purposes of God. Uh, I think one of the most helpful things you do is trace out <clears throat> what I might call the tentacles of suffering. Uh, you, <clears throat> you have an ability to diagnose various dimensions of suffering in ways that even a single event might strike people differently given their background, uh, given their context. Uh, you use one particular example of getting a headache, and you trace through ways in which that simple event might trigger uh, different responses in the life of an individual. Could you talk for a minute especially about suffering and how it can transform our future, uh, particularly immediate future in this life, and then relate it, as you're saying, to the grand storyline of Scripture? Uh-huh. Uh, let me let me um, uh, make clear the framework within which my point about um, uh, suffering with a headache comes up, and that is that in the third chapter, what I'm trying to do is to talk about what suffering is and then how it affects us. And what I want to say that suffering is, is suffering is any unpleasantness that is great enough that we would like it to end. Uh, God, in the Garden of Eden, and in our lives in general, witnesses to us of his existence and his goodness by the ways in which our lives are pleasant. Uh, if you look in Acts 14, you uh, find that when... Um, uh, Paul and isn't it Barnabas um, uh, are, uh, let me look up the actual account because it will be worth getting it just exactly right. In Acts 14, um, Paul is, uh, Paul and Barnabas are at Lystra and they heal a man who in fact couldn't walk. The result of the pagan crowds is that the, the what that produces in the pagan crowds is the idea that two of the Greek Roman gods have come down from heaven. Uh, Barnabas evidently was pretty well built, and so he was taken to be Zeus. 
Paul, of course, was short and ugly and did a lot of talking, so he was taken to be Hermes. <laughs> they want to throw, the, the people of Lystra want to uh, sacrifice to Paul and to Barnabas uh, in that situation, uh, thinking that here the gods have come down from heaven. And, of course, Paul and Barnabas's reaction to that is absolute horror, because they are mere men, and these people are thinking entirely wrongly about them and about what really is going on, which is that uh, the living God is, by means of this miracle, testifying to the truth of the gospel and the fact that they need to turn to God the Son. And, in fact, Paul ends up rushing out into the crowd, and he uh, says, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then here's the important thing. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet... Even though he allowed them to walk in their own ways, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now that implies that the ordinary pleasures we get in life are meant to be taken by us for what they actually are, and that is that they witness to God and his goodness. Now, there's actually great empirical studies that show that virtually everyone the world over, no matter where you live, no matter what your economic situation is, no matter whether or not you have been paralyzed or anything else, that virtually everyone the world over uh, finds, uh, uh, we, we all find our lives pleasant. Now, you can find your life less pleasant if certain things have gone wrong, but over the entire world, we find that people account their lives pleasant. What suffering does is it disrupts life's normal pleasantness in such a way that then we recognize that there's something wrong, and that is meant to put us on the hunt for understanding what's gone wrong, which ultimately by God's grace, can lead us back to himself. So when I bring up this, uh, this case of somebody having a mild headache, I mention that a mild headache can affect us in a couple of ways. If you've got a mild headache, it just immediately, directly um, uh, makes your life less pleasant. Uh, it witnesses to the fact that something's wrong. But in fact, if you have gotten a mild headache in the past and it has turned into a migraine, then you're getting a mild headache now tends to have a different meaning for you than if you're someone who's only had mild headaches and never had a migraine. Uh, if you've had migraines in the past and you get a mild headache now, then you're thinking in terms of the fact this may turn into a migraine and I may end up uh, moaning on my stomach in bed. But let's say that, in fact, a third um, possibility comes up. And in fact, I was actually thinking here of one of my students where this is exactly what happened to him after he graduated from Wheaton and he had gone on to law school. Uh, he got mild headaches that turned into migraines where when, in fact, he went in for a diagnosis, they found out that he had a brain tumor. 
and uh, he had a couple of three years of very intensive therapy uh, in order to try to uh, kill uh, the cells. Uh, they weren't as such malignant, but they were still going to kill him because if they continued growing in his brain, they were uh, going to uh, uh, push on his on 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 his overall mental faculties in a way that it would kill him. They managed to um, uh, to stop the growth, but of course now if he gets a headache, even a mild one. He's going to look at it differently than someone who has gotten a mild headache and from that gets migraines. He's going to be concerned that that mild headache may be a signal that his brain tumor has come back. And so, in fact, exactly the same experience of having a mild headache can have different meanings, different significances for different people. And with regard to the second and the third scenes that I've given, where a mild headache may turn into a migraine or a mild headache may be a sign that, in fact, you have a brain tumor, if you think about it, in both of those cases, what's happening is that the story that you normally tell yourself about the way that the rest of your day or your week or your life is going to go is uh, disrupted in a certain way. If you have gotten migraines before, then in fact, as soon as you get the mild headache, you may be a little unsure whether or not in six hours you're going to be functioning in any decent way whatsoever. If in fact you've had a mild headache before that in fact was diagnosed as a brain tumor, then you may end up concerned about your whole life. You may feel that your whole life is likely to be at risk. Now the interesting thing is that if, as I said earlier, we live by telling ourselves stories about the way that our lives are going to move forward, there's a particular kind of unpleasantness that comes into our lives when we no longer can tell ourselves a pleasant, hopeful story. And that is peculiar to human beings. We can't, we don't think that dogs um, in fact, tell themselves stories about what's going to happen to them in a few hours. If Fido gets sick enough, Fido isn't going to want to go out for his walk, but if Fido's well tomorrow, he's going to be all ready for his walk again. That's just part of who Fido is. But with human beings, where we have to lead our lives by being able to tell ourselves a story of how our life is supposed to develop, when we have various kinds of pain and suffering, that tends to make us doubt whether or not the stories that we've told ourselves are true. And of course, that can be a very bad thing. It might lead someone to say, well, how do I know that God is the good God that I've always taken him to be? But it also can be a very, very good thing in the sense that it can make us rethink the storylines that we're living by and turn to Scripture and find what God in his word endorses as the proper storylines that we should live by, which, of course, uh, those storylines do not include a guarantee that because we're Christian, we're not going to get brain tumors. So would you say this is uh, uh, kind of an out-of-the-blue question, I, I guess, but I'm thinking as you're, as you're speaking, are there kinds of um, suffering hermeneutical principles um, in the way, because you mentioned story and you mentioned context and, and interpretation of um, a specific event, 
Um, is that too much of a stretch, or do you see some some similarities and parallels between just general hermeneutics and interpretation and interpretation of uh, these particular suffering events? No, I would think that in fact we could we could work that out, Jared, in um, rather significant ways. We could think, for instance, of what is said in Ecclesiastes with regard to the fact that uh, at the end of chapter eight where we're told that uh, we are not going to be privy to, with regard to what God is doing uh, in this life, Uh, we're not going to be privy to all the details of what God is doing, and this is the Talbot paraphrase, that if a wise man claims to know what's happening, uh, what's always happening, he's talking through his hat. So, in other words, one of the things that Ecclesiastes 8 makes clear is that um, uh, awful things can happen both to the righteous and to the wicked. And our initial reaction to that is something like, wait a minute, uh, I've been living for God, why should this awful thing happen to me? Scripture, uh, in fact, means to witness to the fact that something awful happening to us in this life is not necessarily a sign of our being in God's disfavor, and uh, we shouldn't expect that God is always going to have things turn out well for Christians. Look at Job. The very point of most of the story of Job is that, um, well, the central point is that God because of Job's righteousness, put Job in Satan's gun sights in such a way that then Job suffered horribly, and of course his three uh, so-called friends assumed that if he was suffering horribly, it was a sign that there had to be some sort of hidden sin in his life. And uh, Job, at least, um, was um, uh, had enough faith and uh, enough trust in God that he was willing to say, no, that's not my case, and um, uh, it's going to become clear at some point that that's not what's true in my case. And God commends Job for his righteousness and condemns his friends for the ways in which they have assumed that if Job is suffering horribly, he must have done something horrible. Right. It, that specifically relates to just a couple threads that um, are throughout the book. Uh, one is uh, the expectation of Christian suffering, and um, the other part of that is um, how you observe that that some Christians have used Scripture and the Bible as kind of a how-to manual. Um, and both those things are related. And what I have in mind when I read those types of things is um, a correction of a kind of pr- prosperity gospel that's out there. Um, I guess the question would be, how much of um, that correction was in your mind as you were writing, uh, maybe not throughout the whole thing, but here and there, and um, what do you do in the book that uh, is a helpful corrective to at least that type of thinking? Actually, it was very strongly in my mind um, as I started the book, because I have um, uh, more than once encountered Christians who have assumed that if they are Christian, then they are just not going to be subject to certain kinds of suffering, uh, that God would not allow Christians to suffer in certain ways. 
And uh, then if, in fact, they have found themselves suffering those ways, let's say that they come under some absolutely horrible temptation or something like that, then if they start to suffer those ways, they find their whole uh, view of God thrown into challenge. It seems to me that um, the common curses of Genesis 3, the curses that apply to both the line of the righteous and the line of the damned from uh, Genesis 3 onwards, um, tell us that we are likely to suffer in all of the ways that non-Christians can suffer, that we shouldn't expect that we are not going to suffer brain tumors, we shouldn't expect that we may not suffer absolutely horrible temptations uh, or any number of other things. We can suffer in all of those ways, plus we are also going to suffer if, in fact, we are the Christian witnesses that we are supposed to be. We are going to suffer for Christ's sake. And that suggests that ultimately Christians are going to suffer more and not less than non-Christians. Uh, that seems to be pretty clearly corroborated by passages such as Hebrews 12 with the claim that um, God as a father is going to chastise every son that he loves. And uh, Romans 5, where we're told that uh, we will... Um, uh, be glorified with Christ if we suffer with him. And so it seems as if Scripture makes it clear that suffering is going to be a feature of every Christian life. Then when we get the kind of approach to Christianity that we get in prosperity preaching, and not merely in prosperity preaching, but in fact I think in a lot of... Um, a lot of evangelical churches where uh, the approach to scripture is to take it that it's a kind of how-to manual where if you accept Christ and you start to um, uh, obey the various guidelines that are given in scripture, then you're going to live uh, a much better, more satisfying, um, uh, less unpleasant life. If we um, fall to those kinds of views, then suffering shocks us really very, very horribly. And um, uh, it's, I think, our place as Christians, and particularly those of us who have suffered pretty significantly, to make clear in the very way that Carlton had mentioned early on in our discussion here, that uh, suffering is precious to Christians. Uh, that um, we can be especially aware of God being with us in suffering, not necessarily at the first moment of suffering, not necessarily uh, uh, at uh, uh, some specified time in the suffering, but very, very often we end up seeing that God is working for our good through our suffering, and we need regularly to say that to Christians so that they're not taken in by these false perspectives. Dr. Talbot, you draw attention uh, to the verse in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, that Christians ought not to be surprised uh, when fiery trials, even it says, comes upon them. And the next verse says, but rejoice 
insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. It's as though the Christian has fellowship with Christ, as you're saying, in the midst of suffering. Suffering is the mode of our fellowship with Christ in this life. Um, there's a, there may be a risk that people listening may think, well, um, this may apply when I hit profound suffering. And I think you, you also helpfully acknowledge that even when we're fighting our own besetting sins, even living in a sin-cursed world, uh, in Christ, suffering does affect every Christian. Uh, could you talk for a minute about the role of Scripture? You, you have a helpful uh, metaphor about breathing exercises. Could you talk about how Scripture applies to every Christian as as they suffer, whether in small or great ways? Well, if we um, if we believe what Scripture says about itself, that it really is God's word, and that God is addressing us through Scripture, where uh, Scripture actually is God speaking to us in a way that um, He corroborates through His Holy Spirit, that He is speaking to us. His word, then we would expect that all of Scripture, in fact, is going to be profitable to us in various ways. And uh, it's significant then that a great deal of Scripture is, in fact, um, involved with stories, uh, with the fact that with the story of Naomi, who really is the central character in Ruth that with the story of Naomi, we, if we follow that through in just four short chapters, we come to see the way in which God redeemed her suffering, the way in which God brings Naomi back from a far country with Ruth in order that uh, he may then providentially um, lead Ruth to um, meet Boaz and for Boaz finally to marry Ruth and for Ruth who had been childless when in fact she was in the land of Moab and married to one of Naomi's sons um, uh, to lead um, um, uh, Ruth to be pregnant and for Ruth to give birth to a son who ends up in fact in the line of the Messiah uh, that story is meant to make clear to us the way in which God redeemed suffering that was so horrible for Naomi that depending on how you interpret the Hebrew, and you can interpret it different ways here, but depending on how you interpret the Hebrew, when Naomi and Ruth show back up in Bethlehem, the uh, women uh, say, as they lay their eyes on Naomi, is this Naomi? Now, that could be no more than a matter of the uh, of a kind of expression of delighted surprise, that they had no trouble recognizing her, and that um, uh, it was just a kind of colloquial way of greeting her, in the same way that I might see a student I haven't seen in 10 years and say, is that Jack? But in fact, it could also be that Naomi had been so transfigured by her suffering that she was no longer clearly recognizable. In any case, she suffered profoundly. She comes back to Bethlehem 
because she is suffering profoundly, and out of that, God brings all of the goods that are part of Naomi's life. Now, in that sense, as um, in fact Richard Pratt used for the title of one of his books, God gave us stories. God gave us stories in Scripture that are meant to help us see the full picture of what he is doing. And Scripture is meant to work that way for us. Scripture is meant to give us the true storyline of history. And here's some of the really interesting stuff about all of that. There are secular psychologists who, for about the last 20 years, have said that scientific thinking and mathematical thinking and other kinds of technical thinking like that are not anywhere near as important to human beings as narrative thinking, as storytelling, that in fact, even a scientist cannot understand his or her life independently of understanding it as a kind of story. I was looking for thus and such a way of discovering this and that, so on and so forth. So in fact, we've even had secular psychologists say that storytelling, narrative, um, um, narratives that give meaningful sequences of events are the fundamental framework within which human beings are supposed to understand themselves. Now think about scripture for a moment. Scripture for a moment definitely has a plot line. It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end. Uh, the beginning involves creation. The middle includes both rebellion and redemption. The end is consummation, but the end actually isn't complete, isn't the complete end, because in fact the consummation of all things is the beginning of the saints spending all of eternity praising God in Christ. And here's the way that I find myself putting it nowadays. If we ask what motivated God to create the world? One way of answering that question is to say this. God the Father loved God the Son so much that he created the world in order that, there might, that he might gather a people who would in fact become his son's bride and praise his son forever. Throughout all of the consummation, throughout all of the eschaton, that's the end of the story. If that's what God is doing, and if our praising God in those ways um, depends on our seeing that we only will uh, experience good through the work of Christ, if that is what God is about, then suddenly the story starts to make sense to us, and all of the suffering of this life, including the fact that we have rebelled and we have sinned and we don't deserve good anymore and Christ has died in our place, and all of uh, the suffering that has come into the world because of uh, the first sin, all of that uh, becomes such that it actually is fuel that allows us, that enables us to praise what Christ has done for us in the way that we should for all of everlasting life. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't echo more the uh, importance of an eschatological perspective um, 
on on many things and and especially this and um going back to um a few things that were mentioned earlier uh we've touched a little bit on you mentioned psychology we've mentioned philosophy there's scripture there's theology um there's a there are multiple disciplines that are mentioned in this book and I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on how you see the relationship between uh, a few that that come up like philosophy and empirical psychology and um and, and those disciplines in their their relationship to scripture and theology. Yeah. Um, uh, the way that I see it is something like this, and we might mention so that if people are thinking about uh, at some point uh, giving this book a try, they know what they're going to find in the text and what they're going to find in endnotes, that uh, virtually all of the philosophy and the empirical psychology comes up in the endnotes and doesn't come up in the text. Because, in fact, I don't want the text to be technical. I want it to be such that anybody can read it. Um, But the reason for, in fact... Um, including not merely theology and what the text emphasizes is what we find in Scripture and the theology that it should lead us to have in the light of what we find in Scripture. The reason for uh, mentioning uh, philosophical perspectives and some of the findings of empirical psychology in the endnotes is the fact that we as Christians really ought to plunder the Egyptians to use Uh, Augustine's phrase for this. Um, There are all sorts of findings that um, empirical psychology has made that really corroborate the Christian story, Uh, and uh, such as the fact that virtually everybody, I mean, this, this strikes people as just absolutely incredible, but if you've spent much time traveling in some place like Africa, you know that this is true. Virtually everybody everywhere, no matter what their economic status is, finds life pleasant. Well, um, empirical psychology has been able to show that, uh, has actually been able to test what is called subjective well-being and show that people all over the world, in fact, um, find that to be so. What they've found with people who are paraplegics in the way that I am is that if you survive your first year, you are likely to find your life pleasant again, um, uh, even though uh, you may find the degree of pleasantness to be one full standard deviation point, that's psychological language, below where it was before. They've done longitudinal studies where they'll have people who suffer some paralyzing accident 20 years out from the beginning of the study those people, if they survive their first year or so, will end up once again finding life pleasant, but the degree of subjective well-being that they feel will be one standard deviation point quite often lower than it was before, yet they still find their lives pleasant. Well, we might ask then, okay, how does that relate to um, what Scripture tells us in passages such as Acts 14? And what we can find is that Uh, Scripture makes it clear that life is meant to be pleasant, that God means to witness to his goodness uh, with regard to everybody the world over by means of the fact that when the sun falls on their faces, they uh, feel a joy that comes from that. That joy is supposed to lead them back to God 
suffering in life is one of the ways where if in fact uh, we are not being led back to God by the pleasantness in life, we might ask questions that we otherwise would not ask that uh, may in fact by God's grace put us on the hunt for um, uh, an adequate understanding of life that may lead us back to him. So empirical psychology has all sorts of findings that in fact corroborate the Christian faith if they are used carefully and uh, with the right sort of discretion. And it's the same with philosophy. So one of the things that I'm trying to do here is that I am trying to have layers of corroboration of the Christian story. Uh, In the main text, the uh, Christian story is given in terms of what Scripture itself says. In the end notes, Uh, there are places where I pick up on uh, uh, something that Scripture, in fact, has either assumed or stated or implied. I pick up on that and make clear that uh, philosophy done a certain way may have come to the same conclusion or that empirical psychology has. And one of the things that I found is that by having those different layers, uh, quite often Christians find themselves... um, more sure of the Christian story for seeing that God really is corroborating his truth, even through some of the secular disciplines. You mentioned in a section the concept of loneliness and how that relates to a lot of the things that we have been talking about. So there's there's physical suffering, and then even along with physical suffering, there can be um, emotional suffering as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you mentioned in the book regarding uh, a Christian's loneliness experience, and and maybe how um, Scripture ties into that as well? What I um, mentioned at the beginning of chapter 2 is the fact that quite often when, scripture, when Christians suffer, they um, uh, find themselves uh, thinking that nobody else has suffered, ever suffered as badly. Uh, the way that I start the second chapter is by saying that one of the worst aspects of suffering is the way it tends to isolate us. When great storms of suffering overtake us, our sense of loneliness can become overwhelming. As the clouds close in, we may lose sight of everything but our suffering, making it loom larger and larger. With profound suffering, it is not unusual to feel as if no one else has ever suffered as much. Uh, What I have observed over the years, uh, both in my own case with suffering that's been much more significant than my paralysis, and particularly as I've uh, spent time with other people who have had some catastrophe that, uh, or some calamity that has plunged them into profound suffering, is that uh, in the midst of that, we can tend to feel as if nobody else has ever suffered as badly. The remarkable thing is that if we knew our scriptures and knew them at all well, the Holy Spirit would no doubt remind us that that is not true. And yet, in our time, Christians are so illiterate with regard to the scriptures that we um, tend not to have read the stories of great suffering in scripture in such a way that then the Holy Spirit can remind us of them when we ourselves are suffering, and uh, in a way in which then, by going to those actual stories, 
we can see the depth of the suffering that God's saints have been involved in in such a way that it makes clear to us that whatever we're going through is not something that other Christians haven't been through in the past or that other saints of God, including his Old Testament saints, have been through in the past. Uh, it seems to me that that's just tremendously important because otherwise what tends to happen is that when things get really, really bad, we think that that actually is evidence that God doesn't exist. When if we know how bad things got for Naomi or for Job or for Jeremiah or for the psalmists or particularly for St. Paul, whose chronicle of all of his sufferings uh, in Second Corinthians is absolutely horrific. Uh, if you think through what he says there, you realize that he probably suffered more than anyone other than our Lord. Uh, when you realize that um, God's saints in Scripture have suffered um, uh, profoundly and yet have maintained their faith, that ought to be um, a reason for us to recognize that profound suffering does not necessarily tell against God's existence or his goodness. Dr. Talbot, that, I think that relates to a broader point you make. Uh, we might call it the, the deceitfulness of sin and suffering, that, it, that when we suffer uh, in particular ways, when the walls seem to be closing in, uh, we can have a distorted picture of reality, and you say that appearance is not always reality. Could you unpack that a little bit for us regarding what God has said about himself and his purposes, particularly when uh, Christians, as you say, are are, are being uh, subjected to the deceitfulness of sin and suffering? I bring that up at the end of the, that uh, claim that appearance is not always reality comes up at the end of the third chapter when I have finished telling the rest of Naomi, Job's, and Jeremiah's stories. In chapter two, I end up um, chronicling and detailing how awful things got for Naomi and for Job and for Jeremiah, but I stop in the midst of the awfulness on purpose so that uh, in the third chapter, I can uh, go on to show that the despair that each of them felt was, in fact, unwarranted. Uh, now, I'm not saying that it was unexpected, because I think that things can get so bad that uh, Christians uh, can almost be expected to lose their hope. Uh, and yet, if we... Um, uh, if, if we know how God has delivered his saints in Scripture, one would hope that that would help us to hang on to our faith. Uh, our Lord suffered profoundly and did not lose his faith and his hope. Um, ideally, that's the way that it should be for us, too. And so when I mention that appearance is not always reality, that's in this context of my telling how Naomi, Job's, and Jeremiah's stories end. In each of those cases, God ends up manifesting to them his continued love and faithfulness in spite of the fact that 
that they lost all hope that they would never see good again. And, of course, we know that they all lost hope that way. Naomi, knowing, uh, Naomi's uh, name means uh, pleasant. Uh, she wants a name change, as she puts it at the beginning of, in, in Chapter 1, I think it's about verse 21 of uh, Ruth, where she says, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara, call me bitterness, because she assumes that the rest of her life is going to be bitter. Job just says outright that his eye will never again see good. And Jeremiah, in fact, ends up so upset after he's been tortured by Pasher that he accuses God of having deceived him, uh, of having misled him with regard to the way that God would protect him. So in each of those cases, we have people who completely lost their hope in uh, God uh, bringing their lives to the place that they'll be good again. But uh, then, in fact, I say this with regard to the rest of us. I say that we all have an almost irresistible tendency in great storms of suffering to lose perspective, believe the worst, and abandon all hope, just as Naomi, Job, and Jeremiah did. Yet, in fact, the scenes that we get from the end of their stories show that they lost proper perspective in the midst of their suffering and thus mistook appearance, which is the appearance that things are always going to be bad for reality. And in fact, in the scriptures, with regard to the stories of Naomi, Job, and Jeremiah, the sheer repetition of the fact that they were wrong in uh, despairing and losing all hope the way that they did uh, conveys the lesson. That very repetition helps us to know that uh, those great saints faced disorienting storms, and yet that while they got disoriented, God wasn't disoriented, that God rescued them and brought them back to uh, a life of goodness and a life of uh, pleasure. Um, uh, it seems to me that, that we as Christians... Um, need to keep those stories in mind. We need to know them before we suffer, and then while we are suffering, we need others to remind us of those stories in such a way that it shows that the quality of our futures is not entirely dependent on whether we can, in the midst of our suffering, uh, faithfully muster up true beliefs. Because, in fact, Naomi, Job, and Jeremiah couldn't faithfully muster up true beliefs. And, in fact, the quality of our future doesn't even depend on whether we can restrain ourselves from uttering what are, in Jeremiah's case at least, near blasphemies. <clears throat> uh, the quality of our future ultimately depends on nothing other than God's goodness and graciousness. Uh, ultimately, it is not... Uh, something about ourselves that brings us safe home to God in Christ. It is, in fact, something about God. Uh, I mentioned in another piece that I wrote some years ago that one of the trustworthy sayings that Paul quotes in Second Timothy in the second chapter is uh, a really worthwhile one to keep in mind here. Uh, Paul, uh, verses 11 through 13 of the second chapter of 2 Timothy, um, quotes this trustworthy saying. It goes, if we have died with Christ, 
we will also live with him. <clears throat> there, of course, is suffering. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. So, in fact, we mustn't just turn away from God and Christ. But then we get this remarkable claim. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we are faithless or hopeless, as Naomi, Job, and Jeremiah were, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Mm -hmm. In the eschaton, that means that much of our praise to God will involve our recognizing that ultimately was nothing about ourselves that account for us coming home safe in Christ. It's entirely about God's grace and mercy and what he has done for us rather than what we ourselves have done. Yes. yes. It's certainly a, just a topic that could be discussed for hours and is, um, like I said in the beginning, just a, a perennial um, discussion and something that uh, goes into just our, our everyday lives. Um, so I hope that listeners can keep this book on their radar and, and check it out when it's released. Um, if you wouldn't mind, would you, uh, is there a, a timeline that you're thinking regarding um, when this book may come out? Uh, I'm planning on delivering it to Crossway in the fall of 2014. And so my guess is it will be out sometime in the spring of 2015. Okay, excellent. Nice. Um, we'll, we'll certainly um, point people in, in the right direction when that happens. And uh, in the meantime, I'll put uh, a link to the Desiring God message that I mentioned and a couple others that relate to the topic, um, just the, the work that you've done. Dr. Talbot, I, I, Dr. Talbot, I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking about the book. And um, maybe we can have you on again at some point because I know that um, the work uh, continues for you as you keep thinking about these things. I, I would enjoy that. Yeah. Well, on our end, for more information, you can visit reformedforum.org. And uh, for any questions, you can send an email to mail at reformedforum.org. Or you can tweet us at reformedforum. And we hope you enjoyed listening. And we'll see you next week on Christ the Center. <laughs>